Our scripture passage is found in your bulletin. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like as well. You can read from Genesis 8, verse 20 up to chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your word, ancient word spoken long ago, but so needed by us this morning. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to make your word alive in our hearts today. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things here. Help us to really get what's going on here. Help us to understand. Help us to see your glory, Lord, in your word. Help us to respond well. Help us to be open to all that's here. Holy Spirit, would you empower your word in these moments together now? For the glory of the Lord Jesus, I ask this. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, you should know that we are just a few weeks into a series we're doing this year called You Are Here, Finding, Your Pla- Finding Our Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. <clears throat> what we're doing in this series is exploring the idea that the Bible is one story, Jesus Christ is the main character of that story, and each of us is still a part of that story today. So, After a couple of weeks of introduction, we've so far considered creation and we've considered the fall, creation, the fall, and then today we come to the story of Noah. Now, here's here's the thing. I I can't get away from the fact that if you are are like me, which I think many of you are, and if you've been hanging around the church or grew up in a home that believed in God, You've probably heard this story a lot. I mean, this is one of those stories as a kid, you just can't get away from it. It's it's familiar even to the point of humor, right? Think of the jokes and the cartoons. It's it's so uh, something that we're so familiar with. I think of kids' stories and Noah's Ark play sets and and stuffed animals and, and there's just so much. So let me ask you some questions. Based on, what, based on your understanding of this story, based on what you know about the story of Noah and the ark, based on your familiarity with this story, what's it about? What's the main point? Why is it in the Bible? What is God telling us in this part of Scripture? And how does this story fit into the bigger story of the Bible as a whole? I think it's safe to say most of the books, Sunday school lessons I took in as a, as a child, the main point of this story, the way that it was taught, was that Noah obeyed God even when it was hard. Right? God told him to build this big boat out in the middle of nowhere, far away from, from an ocean, and everyone laughed at him, but he still kept doing the right thing, and he obeyed God even when it was tough, and so should we. Noah's just kind of a, a moral example of the kind of thing that we should do. I'm not sure that's actually the main point of the story. I'm not sure that's actually why it's in scripture. I think what we're going to see today as we consider the story of Noah and how it fits into the unfolding storyline of the Bible, I think we're going to see a story that is is far more rich, far more meaningful, far more relevant to us today than than I think maybe any of us had, had imagined. So that's where we're headed today. Before we get there, though, we need to touch on something and and kind of clear it out of the way before we move on. And it's the question that I think many of us adults perhaps have as we come to this part of of God's word, this particular account. And it's it's the question, did this really happen? Is is the account of Noah and the ark and the flood and the animals, is, is this really history? Did this happen the way that the Bible describes it? And my answer to that question, for the record, is of course it is. Of course it happens. Throughout scripture, Noah is repeatedly referred to by Jesus, by the apostle Peter, by the author of Hebrews, as a real person. The flood is described as a real event, right? So scripture is pretty firm on on the fact that this, this really happened. The interesting thing is that when we look outside of scripture, we actually see a lot of confirmation about this. So just think, if this really happened, if all people on earth were descended from a family that survived this great destruction of everybody else on a boat, 
we would expect that if we go far enough back, we would find this story all over the world in different cultures and languages. And that's exactly what we find. Almost every significant ancient culture has its own version of the flood story. And from all around the world, not just from one part of the world. They've all got a story. In some, more or less, all of them have a story about God or a God or the gods who were, wanted to punish mankind because of their wickedness. And they saved one man and maybe his family and some of the animals on a boat. And he survived a flood and came out of the flood and populated the, the world again. So that, that's, that's just confirmation of the fact that this has really happened. And it's worked its way into the memory of, of every, every culture on earth, speaking of the ancient cultures. And we can go beyond that. We can look at, at geology, for example. We learned from Mount St. Helens that many of the things that ge geologists thought took millions of years to happen can actually happen in a really short period of time, given a catastrophe of a certain scale. And so there's a whole area of, of creation science called flood geology that looks at if there was a massive global flood like Noah's as described here, what sort of uh, things that we would see. And, and it really lines up with many of the things that we see. So there's really good evidence from science that this is true and this really happened. So, so yes, just to get that out of the way, this is history. But what we're going to focus on this morning is asking, okay, it happened. What does it mean? What, what does this story mean? Why does it happen? How does it fit into the big story of scripture? How does it set the stage for everything that happens afterwards? So that's what we're going to dig into this morning. And to begin to do that, we really need to pick up, not with Noah, but we need to pick up where we left off last week. We need to pick up where we left off with Adam and Eve and the fall. Because remember last week we ended in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve fell from innocence, after they bit the bait, literally, and fell to the serpent's temptation, God cursed his creation. God cursed the earth. And, he, and, and his curse involved significant amount of pain and struggle for both Adam and Eve in different ways. But we saw that right in the midst of that, God also promised a savior. God promised that there would be an offspring of Eve's who would crush the serpent and who would rescue them from the curse in essence. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we look at the chapters of Genesis after that to see evidence that people were eager for this offspring, this savior to come. So we see this right away in Genesis chapter four, verse one, when Adam and Eve have their first child, she gives, Eve gives birth to Cain and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And Eve's words here, some scholars look at this and, 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 and suggest that, that Eve's words show that she thought that Cain, her first child, was the offspring that God promised. Right? And why wouldn't she have thought that? God said, you're going to have an offspring. Here's my child. Why wouldn't it be him? How disappointed Eve would have been to see Cain grow up and be the opposite of a savior and crush his brother instead of the serpent. But then again, later on in the chapter, when Eve gives birth to Seth in, in Genesis 4.25, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. See, here's, there's that word again, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So she's using that word offspring, which is right out of God's promise to her. And it sounds like she's hoping that maybe Seth is going to be the savior that God promised. Just, just take that in for a moment. We're, we're, we're headed for the Christmas season. Just talking to someone about that this morning. 
And we're going to sing a song this year. Come thou long expected Jesus. Did you know, have you taken in before the fact that we have been expecting our Savior all the way from the very beginning? But Seth wasn't that Savior. We read, as we turn over to Genesis 5, Seth had a son and some other children, and then he died. The curse took him down. Seth's son had a son and other children, and then he died. And on and on and on it goes through the rest of Genesis chapter 5, generation after generation of having children and then dying. But then we get to Lamech. And at the very end of the chapter, in the midst of a pretty regular metered genealogy of this person had this, these children and then they lived this many years, and, and, and it's interrupted when we read this in Genesis 5.28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Noah is, has a basic meaning of rest. And he says this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It's the very first place we meet Noah as a baby, not as a man, right? We, we, we're so often used to starting the story there. But no, we meet him here as a baby and his father giving him this name and expressing hope that maybe Noah is the one. Maybe he's the savior that's going to rescue us from the curse. And it's with that in mind that we turn over to chapter 6 and we read what happened after that. So picking up in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah, this, this Noah that we just met as a baby, who his father hoped he'd be the savior, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then Genesis begins a new section focused on Noah. And we read this in, 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 in the next verse, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so the story goes on from there. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. We don't need to go over every part of the story after that. God tells Noah that he's going to destroy all flesh in a flood, but that he's going to save Noah and his family and two of each animal and several of, of other animals, the birds and so on. He's going, to, he's going to save them in a big boat that God tells him to create. So what we need to understand here, what's going on is that God is pressing reset. God's going to start over. Remember when you had to do that with your computer? Maybe some of you still do. It gets garbled and things aren't working and you just you press reset. And God is going to start over here with Noah. So that's what's happening here. God is recreating creation. Noah and the animals go into the ark. And then God brings the creation back to the place where it was in the beginning. Do you remember where it was in the beginning? Genesis 1-2 says that, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says this. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of what? 
the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of what? The waters. That's, the, that's where we started, was a, was a world covered in water and the Spirit of God hovering over it. And what God does in the flood is he brings earth back to that spot. Formless, void, covered in water. And after a time of this, God brings this period to an end and begins to recreate his creation again. In Genesis 1-2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Genesis 8 verse 1, when God is about to bring the flood to a close, it says that he made a wind to blow over the earth. In the Hebrew language, the word for wind and spirit are the, is the identical word. And so when we, when we read that God caused a wind to blow over the earth, this is directly making us think about Genesis 1-2, when the spirit of God was over the water. So what I'm trying to say here is, is, is that the, it's, it's, it's making us realize that this is the same thing happening a second time, essentially. The earth covered in water, the wind or the spirit of God, I mean, it's, it's playing on that word there. And God is about to recreate the world like he did at the beginning. And so just like at the beginning, after the flood is done, God causes the waters to, re to recede. He divides the waters from the dry ground, just like he did in the days of creation. God causes the plants to grow again, just like he did in the days of creation in the beginning. When it's time for them to leave the ark, right? God doesn't create new animals again, because they were all saved on the ark, but he uses almost the same words when he tells Noah to let out the animals that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, language just taken right out of Genesis chapter one. And then in chapter nine of Genesis, God gives Noah and his family the same command he gave to Adam and Eve when he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's more. There's more connections here that we could explore. But I'll leave it at that for now. But I hope you're getting the picture here. Especially to, to the, the, the readers of the Hebrew language as they read this story of the flood. It's all calling to mind Genesis 1 and 2 and God's original work of creation. And the picture here is that the flood is an act of recreation. God's starting over again. And so Noah is a second Adam. Noah is the new father of, of all living, just like Adam was. Noah gets the same command, the same commission. God gives Noah dominion over the animals again, like we read there when he said, I, they're all in your hand. By the way, Noah is also a prophet who hears directly from God. And Noah, just like Adam, is also a priest. We're going to see in a moment here, offering a sacrifice. So Noah inherits Adam's roles as prophet, priest, and king. Noah is the new Adam on a new earth. So if we, if we put that all together like that, we should be asking, man, was, was Lamech right? Was Lamech right that Noah is the one who's going to break the curse and, and bring God's promises to pass? Has the curse been washed away? Are things finally back to, to happily ever after? See, if we were reading the story for the first time, 
we would probably think so. But then we'd be really disappointed when we got to the end of chapter 8. And there we read about the very first thing that happened when Noah got out of the ark. So again, just just put yourself in the spot of reading this for the first time. and, And just even try to imagine that you don't know what happens in the rest of the story. I mean, it sounds like the biggest story ever told is a short story at this point. Adam sinned. People got bad. God wiped out the earth, recreated it, Noah. End of the story. Everything's fine, right? It it seems like it's building up to that. But then we read in chapter 8, verse 20, which is in your bulletin, or you can read in the Bible there, which you have. God says, chapter 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the earth because of man. Stop, stop right there. Doesn't that sound amazing? God says he's never going to curse the ground again. And again, if we're, if we're, following the story and, and, and thinking in a certain way, we could easily think, oh, he's never going to curse the ground again because we're never going to do anything that's going to deserve that. But not so fast, because what does God say? I will never again curse the ground because of man. One of the saddest three letters in the Bible, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither again will I ever stri- neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah comes over to the ark, and God promises that He's never going to curse the ground again because of us, not because we're not going to deserve it, but because He knows that we will deserve it. God knows that in spite of this fresh start, in spite of this act of recreation, that nothing has really changed in here, in our hearts. God knows that it won't be long until we deserve another flood, just as much as those people that he just destroyed. And so that's why God has to make this promise. Not because everything is fine from now on, but because God knows everything is not going to be fine. And sure enough, as we keep reading the story, any of the high hopes that we had for Noah, they get smashed. Noah, like Adam, works the ground. He plants a vineyard. And then he gets drunk and he humiliates himself. And his son Canaan mocks him before his brothers. And when Noah's sober again, he curses Canaan in language that sounds very much like the curses of Genesis 3. And the very next story we read after another genealogy the very next story is the tower of babel so much for a fresh start right so much for noah being the savior that we were hoping for but what i think we need to see this morning is that our disappointment in noah is actually an extremely important part of the unfolding story of redemption here. Because Noah's failure 
to make things right. It shows us something that we couldn't have learned any other way. It shows us in a way that we couldn't have learned any other way. It shows us what our problem actually is. You see, the problem with the world is not just that there's a serpent out there who deceives people. The problem with the world is not just that it's cursed on account of our sin. The problem with the world, Noah's story shows us so clearly, is us. The problem is us. The problem is that even with a fresh start, we wreck it again. We blow it because, like it or not, we are all born sinners because of Adam and Eve. I'm not sure exactly how that works. And some people complain that it's not fair, but that's the way that it is. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we've inherited sin from them. And we are all born sinners. And then we all choose to sin. And even people like Noah, even people who are upright and trust God, even they have sin that they need to be saved from. So you see, what what this story shows us so clearly is that the problem with the world isn't some problem out there. It's a problem in here. And we don't need someone to just fix things out there. We need someone to fix things in here. I think we need to hear that message today. I don't know if you've noticed, but today our culture seems to just be awash in the idea that people are basically good. And that any problems we have, we can just blame on things out there somewhere. Things, problems outside of ourselves. Our culture has done a good job of training us to not take responsibility for ourselves. But to blame all of our problems on other people, on our parents, on society, on this or that or whatever. And we're led to believe that if we can just fix all that stuff out there, and if we can just give people enough good opportunities, then they'll turn out okay. There's also people, many people, who have another set of assumptions. They don't blame the world for their problems, but instead they sort of view themselves as the solution to the world's problems. And I I think at one time or another, this has probably been all of us. Have you ever had one of those, if only they would listen to me kind of moments, right? Where we kind of think that if people would just be more like us, the world would be fine. If only I were in charge of things, if I could have the prime minister's job or whatever, then I'd fix things. You know what the story of Noah does? It completely destroys both of these ways of thinking. The story of Noah shows that if God were to wipe out the rest of humanity and start over with you, you got to be king of the whole world. There's nothing around to mess you up, nothing you could blame your problems on. You got to decide how things would work. Guess what? You wouldn't do any better than Noah did. And even if you did, your kids or your grandparents or your grandkids wouldn't. Because the problem with the world is inside of us. The problem with the world is us. It's our sin and the fact that our intentions like the Lord said, are wicked, even from youth. I've always appreciated the story. People aren't sure whether it's true or not, but there's a newspaper which reached out to some important authors, and they asked them each to write in and and give their answer to this question. What is the problem with the world? And G.K. Chesterton 
wrote back this reply. Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And what he's pointing there is not the fact that he, as a singular person, is responsible for all the problems in the world, but it's just the fact that each of us, we are the problem with the world. Some of you might know that song that Down Here did a few years ago. The chorus goes, everybody's wondering how the world could get this way. If God is good, how it could be filled with so much pain. It's not the age-old mystery we've made it out to be. If there's a problem with the world, the problem with the world is me. And so with, with that in mind, with that very heavy truth in mind, that God started over with Noah and it didn't really fix anything, we come back to what I think is the most important part of this story, and that's God's covenant with Noah. So we started to, to, to see this above when God stated that he is never again going to destroy all life again, like he did in the flood. And then as long as the earth remains, he's going to continue to uphold the pattern of the seasons. And then God makes this formal in a covenant. And we read that in chapter 9. Again, this is in your bulletin. Chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature And then down to verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So let's review. A covenant is a special relationship between two parties and it's held together by promises and commitments. And one of the easiest ways for us to think about that is marriage, right? Marriage is is one of the few examples of a covenant that we see today. And as we're exploring in this series, covenants are an incredibly important part of the storyline of the Bible. In fact, what we're going to see is that the covenants really are the frame on which the whole storyline of the Bible hangs. If the story of the Bible is a building, God's covenants with people are like the the frame, the studs and the rafters that everything else hangs on. And here we come to see the very first covenant that's explicitly mentioned in scripture. God's covenant with Noah. Now that doesn't mean that this is actually the first covenant in scripture. There's actually some good evidence that God had made a covenant with Adam and that what God is doing here with Noah is making good on that covenant. And so we can see that even in the terms of the covenant, right? So in each covenant, there are terms. For one party, they have terms and and things that they need to fulfill. And the other party has terms and obligations that they need to fulfill. And so if we look at the first part of chapter 9, we can see the terms, the obligations of the covenant that God gave to Noah and his sons. And they're almost identical to what God told Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. So in in, in the first few few verses of chapter 9, we see Noah and his sons are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They're to have dominion over the animals. They're to eat what God provides for them. Again, all things God said to Adam. There's a change here. They're allowed to eat animals now, just not their blood. And then in response to all of the murder and killing that happened, God gives them this command that you, you you must not murder each other. And if someone does, you have to bring them to justice. And then finally, God repeats the command 
for them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So that's their end of the covenant. That's what God expects of them. And then God, in verse 11, gives them his part of the covenant. These are the terms that God is obligated to fulfill. This is like his side of the the wedding vows. He says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God promises that he'll never destroy the earth again. Now just think about this. And we've kind of seen this already. If God has to promise never to do something, it's very likely that's because we're going to deserve this to happen. Right? If, if we were never going to deserve another flood, why would God need to make this promise? Just like in a, in a marriage, right? The reason you have to promise, I'll be faithful to you for the rest of my life, is because that's not a natural thing to do. And so it is here. Because like we saw, God knows the intentions of our hearts are evil. And God has to promise, I'm not going to destroy you. Implied, even though you're going to deserve it. And then God makes that clear with the the promise of the rainbow. And it's it's very repetitious. And we read that earlier on this morning. Verses 12 to 16. And in this covenant, the rainbow is like a wedding ring. When we make a covenant, we so often have a sign of the covenant so that when we look at it, we remember the covenant. And the rainbow is like the wedding ring on this covenant that every time God looks at it, not, not that God's going to forget, but it's, it's mostly there for us, but that every time we look at it, we, rem- we remember. Just think about this. If someone came up to you and said, I put something outside my window and every time I look at it, I'm going to remember not to kill you. That's that's a little unsettling, isn't it? And that's essentially what God is saying here. Shouldn't really make us laugh. It should, should, this is very sobering. This is all reinforcing the fact that God knows we're going to deserve another flood. We're going to deserve to be wiped out again. But every time he looks at that rainbow, reminds him, I've made a promise and I am not going to give them what they deserve. I will not wipe out all flesh again. So do you see what God is promising here? God's promising grace. God's promising, even though we deserve it, he's not going to wipe us out again. God's promising to uphold the creation. God's promising that he's going to keep bringing the seasons one after the other. He's going to keep this planet spinning around the sun. He's going to keep giving us food and season and all of these things, even though we don't deserve it. He's promising grace. And what this means is that from this point forward, history can move forward. And we don't have to keep looking over our shoulder wondering if God is going to wipe us all out again. As one pair of authors wrote, the covenant made with Noah creates a firm stage of history where God can work out his plan for rescuing the fallen world. We don't have to keep worrying about another flood. He takes that off the table. He's going to keep things going so that he can step in and keep fulfilling his plans for us in spite of our sin. So when, you, when we see it this way, do you see how big God's covenant with Noah is? It's huge. Everything that comes after it depends on it. 
We're going to see in this series all the covenants still to come with Abraham, Israel, David, and, and Christ. They all depend on this, on God's, God's covenant with Noah. They all assume that God is going to keep the world going. He's not going to destroy it again in another flood. So God's covenant with Noah, it's massive. It's the reason we're alive today. Just think about that. Our generation deserves to be wiped out by the wrath of God just as much as any other generation has, if not more so. I was just reading some things the other day, being reminded about something like abortion, the blood of millions of innocent babies on our hands, funded by the state. We deserve God's fury to wipe us all out. And the only reason he doesn't is because of his promise to Noah. As a kid, I used to think this rainbow thing was cheesy. It's not. Next time you look up and you see a rainbow, remember, I'm breathing right now because of a promise God made to Noah thousands of years ago. That is the only reason I'm alive. So I think that's one of the big truths we should take home from the story today. And isn't this appropriate on Thanksgiving? Right? We celebrate another harvest, another, another season that we don't deserve. But it's here because of a promise that God made. And a promise, listen to this, a promise that God has kept. See, God isn't like us. God doesn't divorce us in his covenants. We don't have to be afraid of him walking away from this. God has kept his promise to Noah. And just like we sung, great is his faithfulness. And that's why we're here this morning. Because our God keeps his covenants. We don't deserve another harvest. We don't deserve this season to keep coming. We don't deserve the sun to rise this morning. But God is great in his faithfulness. So this weekend, Thanksgiving, just, just dive into this story. Dive into this grace. And, and I think this should change just to take Thanksgiving from being a thing on our calendar to something deep in our hearts. To realize this whole world is hanging on the sheer grace of God. I was thinking about us as we head into this time of year. You know what? It's going to start to get cold around here. We chose to live in Nipawin. We know what happens each year. Winter comes. And what comes with it? Complaining. What, what, what would change if we remembered the fact that there's another season, the fact that there's weather in the first place is grace, God's grace. And yeah, another winter is coming and that means another spring is going to come and another summer is going to come, none of which we deserve. This is the grace of God. It really changes things when we see it that way. So how do we take this home today? Let's be thankful Desperately, life-changingly thankful. And one final thought. Let's not forget what is the most important part of the story. The most important part of this story is the way in which Noah prepares us and shows us what kind of a savior we actually need. You see, Noah was an almost second Adam. 
who became the father of an almost new humanity on an almost new earth. But Noah failed. He failed to break the curse. He failed to crush the head of the serpent. And so his failure points us forward to look for a real second Adam who will be the father of a truly new humanity, someone who will pay the price for our sin and make us new from the inside out, someone who will fix the heart, someone who will really crush the serpent, someone who will really break the curse, someone who will really cancel out death, and someone who is going to make a truly new creation where righteousness dwells. So that's what the story of Noah is really about. It's showing us what kind of a savior we really need. It's showing us Jesus. And so this story should make us treasure Christ in a fresh way. As the one who succeeded perfectly everywhere that Noah failed. I'm going to invite the music team up. We're going to sing this song that we've been singing for the past few weeks. Sing this song with the story of Noah in your mind. Worship God for his faithfulness. Worship Jesus for the way that he has truly saved us. Father, we praise you today as the king of this creation, this creation that you're upholding today by the word of your power and by your grace your grace and your covenant that you have made with Noah and have not broken to this day. God, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for the way that Noah shows us how much we need Jesus. We praise you that Jesus has come. We praise you that the curse is broken, has begun to be broken. We praise you for his blameless life. And God, we praise you for the true new creation that's coming. And God, I pray that in the meantime, you would fill us with a passion to truly fill this earth with songs of worship to you. You deserve so much, God. May you receive that from us today. Receive the thanks and the praise from us today and this week and beyond as we remember how faithful you are. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God, as we go from here. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May God bless you as you go from here.